is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream, and love, true love, will follow you forever. So treasure your love. Skip to the end. If, uh, if you haven't seen uh, The Princess Bride, you now have homework. Uh, it used to be on Netflix, it isn't anymore, but I'm sure you can find a copy laying around. Love, true love, though, I actually did a wedding where they asked me to say that exact line for their wedding. And if you've ever seen The Princess Bride, you know that deep down, right, that's at the core of it. You've always been repeating that line. And so today, I'm going to give you the opportunity to live out your dreams all together. We're going to say that line together. It's going to be up on the screen. So I need you to get your tongue ready, your best Elmer Fudd voice, and we're going to read this together out loud. Are you ready? Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, we are in week five of a series that we're calling Double Dog Dare, and we've been kind of looking at different areas of our life, ways that we can step forward, step into maybe what God has called us into, maybe remove some obstacles that would hinder God's favor from resting upon us. And today we're going to get to and talk about not just marriage, but love. But before we do that, let me just recap with you. This is week five, which means that today is our last dare. Next week, we're going to finish up this series and we're going to kind of call us to action now that you've heard all of the dares and you've had the opportunity to kind of maybe know where God is leading you. But if you've missed one or if you just want to review, we're going to go through it together here quickly in preparation for next week. So we started out last year, which sounds like a really long time ago, but it's true. Uh, and we said that, hey, what we need more than anything in 2018 is to prioritize hearing from God and then putting that into practice, hearing and obeying. And I challenged you to get one word. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you're still thinking about it. I've been praying over some of you who've shared your word with me. Then after that, we said, hey, the most important habit, the thing that will most help us no matter where we're at in life is to simply prioritize reading the Bible. 15 minutes a day, you're going to get through the entire Bible and it's going to be life transformational for you. So that was week two. Week uh, four, and I'll tell you why I'm doing week four, which was last week, we dared you to get real by stepping into a group, to not be known by something, but be known by someone. And the reason why I skipped over number three is because it's my dare. And every time I write out the list of dares, I always forget one. And I can't remember why I leave out the one that applies to me. My dare is to get healthy, to get healthy in no matter what sphere of life that is, whether it's physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever God might be calling you to, and to step in to conquer those things, to conquer what conquers you. So there's a quick review of the last four weeks of dares. I hope you've got yours. If not, maybe Maybe today is your day because today we are talking about love, right? Love is all that you need. But if you're not in love, then don't tune me out. Maybe you're single in this room or you've fallen out of love or you've lost that loving feeling. But I want you to stay with me today because we're going to talk about and diagnose when love goes wrong and what we can learn about it. So I hope no matter where you're at today, uh, from whether you're happily married, whether you're in love, maybe you've fallen out of love, maybe you're hoping that love comes one day, or maybe you've completely given up on love, that we find some practical encouragement, not only to help in our marriage relationships, but to help in all of our significant relationships as we 
go forward. And so to foster this conversation, I'd like to start out by kind of defining our terms, because love is a really big, broad word. It can mean a number of different things. And so today, I specifically want us to zoom in on this idea of romantic love versus true love. And I'd like to make this point to us today, that the way to keep romantic love alive is to experience true love. If you want to keep the romance alive, if you want to stay in love, then the the key marker, the way to do that is to experience and foster and have true love underneath the surface. And you may say, well, what's the difference? Isn't Isn't that the same thing, right? Isn't love love? But if we sat down over coffee and had an honest conversation, right, you know that isn't true, right? Romantic love is love at first sight, right? True love is a love that endures beyond what we can see. Romantic love is exuberant and fast-paced, and it makes your heart flutter and your wheeze neek. But true love is steadfast. It's immovable. It isn't based on an emotion, but on a decision that's already been resolved. Romantic love is what we all dream of. It's what's on the screens and in the books. It's what we think love is all about. But true love is what makes marriages last 30, 40, 50 years and beyond. I think, unfortunately, sometimes the story that gets told is that we have to choose one of these over the other. Like, think about the last romance movie that you saw where there was a conflict, right? The, the damsel in distress has to choose between the adventurous, hunky kind of guy who lives on the edge and gives her butterflies or the safe, stable guy who'll provide for her, right? And her answer hinges really depending on which movie that you're watching. But if I were to ask you, would you rather have romantic love or true love, what would you say? Don't shout it out loud. That'd be bad right now. Would you rather have true love or romantic love? I would say, hopefully, and you would say, well, I want both, right? I don't want to have to choose between those two things. Really, I want my marriage. I want my significant relationships to all be characterized not only by the romantic portion of love, but also by true love, by something deeper than that. So why can't we have both? Do we have to make a choice? Is romantic love and true love mutually exclusive, or is there something else that happens over the course of a long-term relationship that begins to erode or deteriorate love? Which reminds me of a story. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 24 today. Genesis 24, if you brought your Bibles, you want to pull it up on your smartphone, or if you'd like to borrow one of our Bibles, I'd encourage you just to slip your hand up. We're going to be all the way on page 11. It'll take you a long time to find it, Uh, but we're starting off early this morning. We're going to spend some time in this story, so if you brought a Bible, smartphone, or you'd like to borrow one, I'd encourage you to do that. But really, this is a familiar story. You've probably heard it before, and it's about Isaac, and Isaac, you remember, his name means means laughter because when his mom Sarah found out that she was going to have him, she laughed because she was about a hundred years old. And you remember Isaac grows up and he becomes this child of the promise for Abraham and Sarah. And so when he grows up, this is at the time where he's looking for his bride to be, right? He's old enough, he's come of age, and his dad sends somebody out to his homeland to find a wife for him. Isaac knows this is going on. He knows what's happening. And I just want to read you the moment of their first encounter because I think it's really Really sweet. I think the text says some things, and I think that we can maybe read between the lines a little bit as we maybe diagnose a little bit of the difference between romantic love and true love. So we're going to be Genesis chapter 24, verse 62, or page 11, if you're following along in one of the warehouse Bibles here. It says, Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Rohai, and he was living in the Negev. 
He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, can you see it happening? He saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up, and she saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man coming from the field to meet us? That's what it sounded like. He is my master, the servant answered, and so she took her veil and covered herself. So let me translate this a little bit for us, right? Isaac's servant goes off to find a wife for him, and so he knows that she's coming back. He knows that this is happening. Rebecca is in on the gig. The servant comes and showers both her and her family with gifts, and the servant says, hey, I want you to come meet my boy. She goes, all right, I can do that. So they head off on a journey. They're going back to this homeland. They both know what's happening, but they've never seen each other until this exact moment. And so she's coming over the hill, right? And she sees not just some guy in the field, right? She sees a who is that kind of man, ladies, you know what I'm talking about, right? So she sees that guy and she goes, I don't know who that guy is. And the servant goes, yeah, that's, uh, that's who I was telling you about. So she gets down off her camel and she covers herself with, the, with her veil. This is a symbol of respect, of beauty, of honor. This is what a young unmarried woman was to do to convey the respect that she had for the man who was approaching. Now this isn't specifically in the text, but let's flip it around, right? So Isaac is out in the field and he knows what's going on. He knows that his servant is bringing back a wife for him. And so as he's out in the field, as the sun is setting, you can see it perfectly in your mind. So, uh, some camels come up over the desert hills. And he knows that one of those shadows, one of those silhouettes belongs to his future bride. And so he runs up to meet her and she jumps down to meet him. And they have this, this moment, right, where their eyes connect and you can see the sparks fly between them. The story goes on. They fall in love. They get married. They choose to honor God in in that way, but they're found to not be able to have children. And so there's this beautiful, tender moment in Scripture where it says that Isaac prays for Rebecca. And I'm guessing this isn't just like a one-time prayer. I'm guessing this is an ongoing pleading and seeking after God for the health and favor of his wife. And lo and behold, she's able to become pregnant, and she has twins, and, a, and she's prophesied that they're going to be warring nations within her womb. And the camera pans out, the credits roll, and they live happily ever after, right? That's how the story ends. At least that's how every story that we've ever seen is, right? Once you fall in love, the, the plot is over. And so this is what we learn. This is what we pick up on, that all we really need is love. All we really need is that spark, that enough to start the relationship off. That's what it takes to get married. That's what it takes to fall in love. And so then we get married. And it, it, it's a little bit different. Maybe it's not for you, it was at least for me, right? But we get, we get married and all of a sudden the sparks that were there turn into flames. And I'm not talking about the good kind, right? We get married and romance quickly fades, right? What once was sweet, what once was romantic has all of a sudden become sour, it's become bitter. It's become not what we expected, not what we saw in the movies, not what we signed up for. They've done studies on this. In a recent study by Psychology Today, they say that romantic love lasts in marriage somewhere between nine months to four years. Even in another study, it mentions that right, those butterflies that we feel, those happy kind of romantic in-love feelings, those things have a shelf life. And that shelf life is usually two to four years, which is just long enough to meet somebody, fall in love, and then decide to get married before it all comes crashing down. 
And so reality and story don't quite mix. We get fed this lie that romance is all that we need, and then four years in marriage or under, we end up getting socked in the mouth by a hard dose of truth. And it usually winds up coming out something like this. Is this what I have to deal with for the rest of my life? Have you ever uttered that? Right? You ever said, is this, is this what I've got to deal with? Is this what I signed up for? Right? Socks strewn across the floor, morning breath, no working knowledge of how a dishwasher or washing machine works. And she goes, is this, is this what I have to deal with for the rest of my life? Right? He gets told to pick up and clean up and shape up and shut up and dress up. And he goes, really? Is this what I signed up for? Is this what I have to deal with? Sweet turns to sour and we don't even recognize it. Have you ever been there? Statistically, you know this, right? Statistically, 50% of marriages, give or take a couple percentage, end in divorce. It doesn't matter if you're inside the church or outside the church, but there's this beautiful, sweet moment of having been in love and then something changes. Some of our relationships have soured to the point where you've gotten divorced or people around you have gotten divorced, but that was never the intention when we set out. The point of romantic love is that it would lead to true love, but I don't know about your experience, but in my experience, that just isn't the case. Something happens, something transpires, and romance quickly goes out the window, and true love goes along with it. See, I'll be honest. We've been married for 14 years. Melissa and I started dating in high school. We got married three short years later in our sophomore year of college. Everybody thought we were crazy, and we were, but we loved it, and uh, we were head over heels in love. But I can remember distinctly the moments when our marriage began to sour, when what was sweet and blissful and happy all of a sudden started to move towards disdain and indifference and callousness. I remember one particular morning we were having a discussion, right, an argument. Melissa and I don't argue. We intensely fellowship, uh, which is just a fun little word to use there. So if you ever see us yelling at each other, we're not fighting. It's just fellowship intensely, right? That's what we do. So we were intensely fellowshipping, and I said the wrong thing at the wrong time. Neither of us could tell you what that was because it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. But she happened to be making breakfast. She was getting an Eggo waffle out of the toaster, and wouldn't you know that thing never hit the plate. It came across the dining room towards me, didn't hit me Thankfully, because it had a little frisbee effect, uh, but she threw a waffle at me on the way out the door. And I remember thinking at that moment, wow, right, we're there, right? I don't know how we got here, but as I reflected on the vows that we made, this woman that I'd promised to love and to cherish in sickness and in health, and I mirrored that with my reality and this cold disdain and this sourness, this bitterness, I went, wow, something change. Something shifted there, and I don't know what it was, but from what I could tell, it wasn't any different on her end either. Has your marriage, has your love, have you ever experienced that sweet bliss turning into something that's turned sour? If you have, then good news, you're not alone, right? Our lovebirds in Genesis experience something similar. They have twins, which is God-honoring and great and beautiful, something that they'd been praying for, but they didn't make the sequel, right? Here's how this story ends up playing out with the twins that were conceived. It says, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, their dad, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. 
You can see kind of this splinter divide, right? You're not supposed to have favorites as parents. If you do, don't say it, right? But we all know that there's this opportunity, and these kids come in, and they begin to splinter this loving relationship, right? And the translation here right, is that Jacob was a mama's boy, right? He liked to stay at home. He liked to cook. He liked to help out with mom. He was mom's favorite, right? And Esau was a wild man like his father. And because of these two different children, their personalities begin to splinter. And their relationship turns from sweet to sour, so much so that as Isaac, Rebecca's loving husband, remember the sparks and the twinkle in her eyes as he's on his deathbed, she convinces this favorite son to be deceitful and to steal his father's blessing for his brother, to dress himself up like his brother and to take his birthright. Now, just pause and reflect on how messed up that is, that their love had soured to the point where she was willing to lie, steal, cheat, and deceive this husband that she loved in favor of her son. I don't care who you are, that's messed up. Here's my simple point. Romance has a shelf life, whether we're talking in Bible stories, whether we're talking in psychology, whether we're talking in our experiences, right? So if you want to stay in love, your love has to be rooted in something deeper than feelings and romance and attraction. It has to be more than a fleeting emotion. It has to be more than a feeling. So how do we do that? How do we take what's become sour and how do we make it sweet again? Could we fall back in love, right? Well, um, Can we stay in love and can we keep working forward on those areas where God has called us into, right? I hope that that's your question. That's my question today. I hope to answer it. We're going to flip over to 1 John. We're going to look a little bit at how the New Testament defines this attitude and this aspect of love. So John's writing, don't flip to his gospel. This is his letter that comes much later. And this is his instructions to to the church about how we keep love together. Here's what he says. John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. He says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. And anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, then God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. So if romantic love doesn't answer the question, then we've got to find where true love comes from. And from the scripture and from experience, I'd like to make the point to you that true love only comes from God. So if our romantic love won't carry us all the way, if those feelings, that initial spark, those initial attractions won't get us much further beyond that four-year mark, then we have to find and define a love that's given to us by God. True love is learned from God. It's given to us and it's expressed in the person of Jesus. And if you want to know how to stay in love, then you have to get it from God. That's the testimony of what Scripture says here, which leads us to our truth today. We've been breaking down this double dog dare by giving you a truth and then a dare and finally an action. And so here's our truth today. Romantic love may start a marriage, but true love is needed to strengthen a marriage for your whole life 
And true love only comes from God. I want to point out something in that verse there that's really key and critical in my life, and that's this idea that God is love, right? Notice that this isn't something that God does. It doesn't say that God is loving, although he is. It doesn't say that God possesses love, although he does. It says that God is the embodiment of love. God is Love and the loving things that we experience, the little fragments of our reality, the things that cause us to fall in love or to experience love, all find their explicit purpose in God. And when we fall in love, we see the reflection of His divine nature reflected in the person across the table from us. But we misdiagnose it, right? We, being the people that we are, we begin to fall in love with that feeling of love, with those initial attractions, instead of putting it in its proper place within who God is. So if your marriage has turned sour, if you're wanting to prevent a future relationship from souring, if you're just wanting to protect and preserve this in the relationships that you have, then that leads us to our dare today. Here's my dare for you. We dare you to fall back in love. We dare you to fight, to honor your vows, to love each other, to not just simply rekindle the romantic feelings, although I believe that that can and does happen, but it only happens when we choose to build love on a foundation of true love that will strengthen your marriage beyond what a quick fix can ever do. Now, you may say, well, I'm not married in this room today. I'm not even dating anybody. That's not even on the radar for me, and I don't even know if I want it to be. Maybe love's gone that far, or you're just in a season of your life where that's true for you, but but let me just point out something here, that this still boils down to how we interact and affect people around us. It happens to do with how we experience love, and so God's love is portrayed regardless of whether you're in a relationship or out of a relationship or ever hope to be in a relationship. This is about understanding who God is and how that connects with the world around us. So if you're not married, you're not off the hook, you still can dive into the truths of who God is and experience that because the only thing that you need to experience true love is to understand it from God. But for those of us who are married or in a relationship, how do you fall back in love? How do you stay in love? How do you keep fighting for that true love, whether the romance has gone or not? And if you've been in church any length of time, then this will be familiar to you. You might say, well, Ephesians chapter 5, right? This is the quintessential marriage chapter. It's where we always go to talk about how we ought to love one another, how we ought to lift each other up, how we ought to serve one another in marriage, right? Maybe you even read this uh, at your wedding, right? But in verse 22 and 25, we'll break it down real easy here. Wives, submit, to, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we end up saying things like, well, if you want a happy marriage, if you want to experience love, then you just got to serve each other. You just got to put the other person first always, which is great advice, very, very biblical, and that's fine. But something happens in our sour state. I don't know if you can connect with this, but it's very, very real and tangible for me. See, in my soured state, when I go to do these things for my wife, I end up kind of going, well, see, what I want, what I want is I want to feel loved, right? I want to be loved. I want all those things. And scripture says that the way that that I'm supposed to love, that my wife is supposed to love me and the way that I'm supposed to love her. So I'm going to love her in the way that scripture says. I'm going to serve her. I'll do the dishes. I'll do the laundry. I'll pick everything up. I'll do everything that I can do so that she'll love me back. 
And the Lord blessed her. My wife does the same thing. Hey, I want to feel loved and treasured by my husband, so I'm going to do all the things that he asked me to do. I'm going to cook. I'm going to do all that stuff so that I can feel the way that I want to feel. See, when we're not perfect spouses, which none of us ever are, we all fall short of this high ideal and standard, then we end up serving one another for what we can get instead of what we can give. We end up turning it on its head and we end up serving one another for the service of ourselves instead of even for the other person. But let's say you're better than me. Chances are that you might be, right? So let's say you're going, no, I just serve and I love my wife. I do, I obey all the biblical things and it's just for, I'm just putting that person first. That's fantastic. Let me just give you a, a key bit of wisdom here. No matter how good you are at loving your spouse and your spouse is at loving you, eventually, eventually you're going to let each other down. It's just going to happen. You're not perfect. They're not perfect. And no matter how good you do at keeping each other first, the love that you experience in your marriage was never meant to and it was never created to completely fill up that void in your heart. It just wasn't. And I think that the problem is that we take this Ephesians 5 verses and we make them the end all be all of our marriage. Wives submit, husbands love, and we think that that works. And now all we do is we keep spinning this crazy cycle, but now there's scripture involved in it. And it's because we didn't start the chapter. We don't start where Paul starts when he writes this. He starts at verse 21. Actually, he starts at Ephesians 1, right? And he's building a whole case up until chapter 5. But if we even rewind to Ephesians 5, 21, let's see what Paul's reasoning is for why we should love each other. Is it so that we can feel the way that we want to feel? Is it so that we can put our spouse first? Why does Paul say we ought to do this? Here's what he says, Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another, not because they're good, not because of who they are, not even because of who you are, not because of your vows. Submit to one another out of reverence for who Jesus is. When we honor our spouse, we honor who Jesus is. And this may surprise you, right? But I'm not perfect. I know, I'm as shocked as you are. When it comes to marriage, it always takes two to tango. But in those early years, right, when we end up going through and doing all of those things, we all know whose fault it is. Whose fault is it? It's their fault, right? They're not listening. They're not obeying. They're not following through. They're not loving me in the way that I want to be loved. They're not doing those things. It's his fault. It's her fault. But at some point, we have to take the ownership for what we control, which usually spirals into this husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands and that whole thing spins on. But very rarely do we stop and reflect that the way that I treat my spouse has nothing to do with who they are and the way that they treat me has nothing to do with who I am or what I do or don't do. But the reason that we honor our spouse is because of who Jesus is. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, who is the head of all of us who are of the family of faith. And we go there first and foremost, not because our wife or or our husband does what we want them to do or doesn't do what we want them to do, but it starts out with recognizing God's place as the head over everything. See, true love only comes from God. And before we get into any specific gender roles, Paul reminds us that the reason that we do this is out of reverence for Christ, not out of manipulation or to get what we want or to even control what we can control. If true love only comes from God, then sometimes we use God to just make people give us what we want. So how do we beat it? How do we submit to one another? Let me give you a real piece of practical advice here. There was a recent study that was done. A group of scientists set out to go, how do we make 
What are the quantifying markers, right? What makes lasting marriage? This wasn't a faith study, right? These were just secular scientists who were going, we just want to know what it takes to make marriages work. And so they set out to go, what does it take to conquer romantic love? What are the secrets and the key ingredients to long-lasting marriage? And they found one attitude, one behavior, one thing over all else that would help keep a marriage together for the long haul. Any guesses as to what it was? Kindness. Kindness. Simply being kind. Simply being human to each other. Simply letting what was sweet and turn to sour and going, man, if we could just be nice, that would change everything, right? It's mind-blowing, I know, but let me just peel something back for you, right? In Philippians chapter 2, there's a translation that uses this word, and I just want to read it to you in context with what we're talking about. In Philippians 2, it says, put yourself aside long enough to be kind with a helping hand. Put yourself aside long enough to be kind with a helping hand, right? Like, remember when you were dating and you sat down to eat for the first time and neither of you could eat because you were just so giddy talking the whole time, right? You're having the conversations and you're learning and you're pouring into each other. And fast forward to date night now where we're flipping through our phones to look at stuff that we don't really care about and we're just spending time because that's what's expected of what the time together is. Instead, what if we were to be kind? What if you want to, so if you want to fall back in love, if you want to prepare your relationship for the future, be nice. I know, I'm blowing your minds this morning, right? When your spouse walks in the room, put your phone down. Pause the TV. Shut the laptop. Make eye contact. Treat them like they are the most important person in the world to you. Make them some waffles. Don't throw them. Just make them for them. Let them eat them, right? It's amazing what just a little kindness and care can do. So here's your action step. If you're facing bitterness, if your marriage has gone from sweet to sour and you want it to go back to sweet again, or you just want to preserve any future relationships, whether romantic or not, here's a simple action step. Let kindness conquer contempt. Let kindness conquer contempt, right? When sweet turns to sour, contempt reigns. And in order to fall back in love, you're going to have to make a difficult choice. And the choice is who's more important. And before you jump ahead of me and fill in that blank, because you've already heard this sermon before, I'm not saying who's more important, you or your spouse. I'm saying who's more important, you or your obedience and your faithfulness and your honor to God. To Christ, right? Submit to one another, not out of reverence for who they are, not out of reverence for who you are. Submit yourselves out of reverence for who God is, for who Jesus is. And so when we choose to honor our spouse, we choose to honor the way in which God has gifted and placed that within their life. And so if you want to rekindle love, if you want true love to last, then you've got to let kindness conquer contempt. Because if you want to know why most marriages fail, it isn't because we choose ourselves over our spouse, at least not at the fundamental level. If you want to know why most marriages fail, it's because we choose ourselves and our feelings and our emotions over following what God has decreed and put into place. We choose ourselves over God. Your spouse, imperfect though they may be, is somewhat irrelevant to the conversation because this is about you and about God. 
So if you want true love that lasts beyond romantic love, that two to four year window, or if you want to fight for both, then maybe today you need to just say, I need to fall back in love. But before you fall back in love with your spouse, let me challenge you, fall back in love with your Savior. Before you make a commitment to honor vows to another human being who will disappoint you and who will let you down, maybe you need to go back to your heavenly father who sent his son to die for you to demonstrate what love is and to say, I've been living for myself in too many areas, in too many ways I've wanted to follow my own path instead of following yours. Maybe you need to renew your vows to your savior before you even consider renewing your vows to your spouse. Because here's the deal, romantic love may be enough to start a marriage, but it's not enough to keep it going. It's not enough to stay in love. You've got to have true love, and true love comes only from the person of Jesus through God's gift. And so no matter where you're at on this spectrum of in love, not interested in love, hurt by love, I don't care. The reality is that Jesus is the answer to whatever you need whatever is fitting in that box. The reality simply is that love comes from God. And if you've lost that, then that's where it starts, is going back to him. If you want to fall back in love with your spouse, fall in love with Jesus first. And I promise you that Jesus will make a lasting impact in how you treat your spouse and how your spouse treats you. And true love will begin to grow again. Because if there's anything that's true that I believe to be true, it's that our relationships always, always, always end up going from sweet to sour at some point. But that God's word and God's presence in our lives can absolutely transform what once was sour and bitter and make it sweet again. So a couple action steps. When you leave today, uh, we've got just a little gift for everyone. Let me see if I can get it out here. I got some uh, Sour Patch Kids, right? You know, the, uh, you know the, the motto on the Sour Patch Kids, right? First sweet, then sour. Let's be a conversation. Have it after dessert. Have it after you get the kids down. Let's talk about what makes our marriage sweet. Let's talk about what makes it sour. After next week, we're going to launch into a marriage series. Maybe you just need to have the conversation and commit to saying, you know what? I think we need to be at every single week. I think we need to join a life group so that we can talk with other married couples about how we can rekindle and fight for our marriage, how we can fall back in love. Maybe it needs to be on your calendar. Maybe you need to just take a weekend off and go to a marriage retreat. There's tons around. Maybe you need a date night and to put it on your calendar. Here's my point. You've got to let love have a place within it. It starts with God, and once you get that straightened out, then you have the opportunity to put some action steps in place. So I just want to give you a moment here to reflect. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and just take a minute to listen to God, to ask the Holy Spirit what he would have you take from this. And if this is your dare to fall back in love, then I would encourage you to have a conversation with Jesus, to ask him to say, God, you know what, before I even talk or think about my spouse, Jesus, I need to talk to you. There are some fundamental ways that I've stepped outside of your will for my life. Not only have I forgotten perhaps my vows to a spouse, but I've forgotten my vows to you, to a savior who gave himself up for me. Maybe you need to seek forgiveness or to seek his grace in your life to ask him to come on behalf of the mistakes that you've made and just to fill in those gaps, to renew and restore and to rekindle what maybe you thought was dead. Maybe you're fully there with your spouse right now and maybe if you're honest with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit, you're just going, 
I've lost that love and feeling, right? It's just not there anymore and I want it to be. I want to fight to make this work. I want to fall back in love again and invite God to come in and to recognize that his example, his true love is what gives you the power, the strength, the perspective to love your husband, to love your wife, to pour out and pour into. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness to, for trying to do this on your own, for trying to be the perfect spouse or to expect your spouse to be perfect. And you just need to own the fact that your satisfaction comes from God, not from another person. I just encourage you to take this time, take this space as we sing one more song. Maybe this isn't about singing a song for you, but it's about reflecting and listening and praying. Asking God to come in and to reveal some truth to you, to give you hope and inspiration, to give you a well of strength so that kindness can conquer the contempt, so that bitter doesn't have to reign supreme, but that your relationship can be sweet again. Heavenly Father, I don't want just romance and I don't want to simply not have romance. God, I want the best of both worlds. I want true love to come from you into my marriage, into my significant relationships with others. God, I want to be filled up with your Holy Spirit and with the love that you give. And so, God, as we go forward from this place, God, I hope that you will enable and allow and challenge us to fall back in love in the areas where our love has grown cold. God, whether in our relationship with you or in a relationship with a spouse or even in a friendship or in casual relationships, God, if we've fallen out of love, God, then would you teach us the true meaning of love? God, would you teach us what it means that your son came down from heaven to demonstrate what love poured out is. And when we think about those significant relationships, God, may we submit to one another, not because of who they are or because of who we are, but because of who you are. God, would your example challenge us and move us forward? God, would you give us the strength to do what you're asking us to do? God, we dare ourselves to stay and to fall in love all over again. And that starts with you. So God, by your power and by your grace, would you make that happen? We ask all of these things in the strong and mighty name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's kids said, Can hold us down. Death is defeated.